This past week, I think sometime around Wednesday or Thursday, I decided I wanted to stop looking at my Facebook news feed. It seemed like there was bad news every time I checked. This week we lost a few greats, a few people who were well-known and beloved to many of us. The actor Alan Rickman passed away this week. The musician and artist, incredible innovator David Bowie passed away this week. And closer to home, there was also a lot of birth and death going on in our world. Here in our community in Wellsprings, we actually had two new babies born in the last week. Wendy and Shane Para gave birth, well, Wendy gave birth, to, <laughs> to their third child, a son, Parker. And um, Pamela and Kevin Brandt gave birth to their second daughter, Nora, just a couple days ago. And we also had losses in our community. A few too many to name, actually. This is a time of year right after the holidays, when the life cycle can feel especially present for us. And when we're near to birth and death, when those things are real for us in our lives, when they're immediate for us in our lives, there's an interesting thing that happens. It kind of pulls us back down to earth, I find. We find ourselves making choices about our time that are very different than we would otherwise make. We sit at a bedside holding a hand. We rub the back of a woman in labor. We do this for hours with no question. It's not even a matter of a shift in priorities. It's a non-negotiable. We understand in those moments that this is where we're supposed to be, together with each other. That all of the time that we have together is a sacrament. Because it's not forever. It's never guaranteed. I've found that spending time with little children helps me remember this. Now, I'm not a parent. I realize I have a little veneer of charm that goes along with spending time with little children when I'm not the one responsible for teaching them things like delayed gratification and control of their impulses, right? But for me, it's a really joyful reminder, and maybe you find this when you're around other people's children, That little kids, right, the younger they are, they don't understand anything except what's right in front of them. The whole world is immediate to them. Everything that matters is what's happening right now. They don't want to think about a week from now. They don't want to think about what you're having for dinner later on. They want your attention and your care in this very moment. They call us back to the present. When I was in my early 20s, I signed up at the church I was attending at the time, All Souls Unitarian Church in D.C., a huge church with over 1,000 people. I signed up to teach in their religious education program, like the youth spirit program that Becky runs that we have here at Wellsprings. And they had so many kids in this program that where they actually needed a teacher the most was with the two- and three-year-olds class. That's right, they had a class for two- and three-year-olds to learn about religious education. It was, you know, we were using all those terms loosely at that time. And so along with the co-teacher, I found myself responsible for 13 toddlers. 13, yeah, 13 kids aged two and three. Their relationship to time was very different than mine. 
This hit home for me on the day, actually, that we were assigned to teach the kids, <laughs> teach the toddlers about wonder, right? I was supposed to teach them something about wonder. <laughs> it's a little backwards. The activity that was the cornerstone of our morning was baking muffins together. So, you know, we're going to talk about how you combine all the ingredients, you put it in the oven, these things that were just once goop become delicious muffins, and then we can eat them together and taste the blueberries. And it, it all made sense to me. And I thought, okay, I'm ready for this. I like to bake. This is going to be fun. Until I found myself sitting at a round table with 13, 2- and 3-year-olds sitting in a half circle around me, looking at me going, okay, what do we do? I tried to find a picture of that so that you could get a mental image of what it's like to have 13, 2- and 3-year-olds facing you with expectant faces. (laughs) Apparently that's not a thing that happens in nature, though, so I couldn't find a picture. (laughs) But just imagine, right? You're sitting there at that table and you have a bowl and a spoon. You have muffin mix. You have eggs. You have flour. Actually, you have muffin mix, so you don't have flour. You have a (laughs) carton of milk. And then you have 13 expectant, impatient little faces. And I suddenly realized muffin baking is not a team activity. (laughs) Certainly not for toddlers. Kids don't understand that. They were not about to talk amongst themselves while I measured out the muffin mix and cracked the eggs. And so thinking a little bit on my feet, I picked up the carton of milk, and I said, okay, kids, now here's the first thing you have to know about muffin baking. It's very important that we shake the milk, right? We have to shake the milk up really good before we can put it into the bowl and make the muffin. So I'm going to pass the milk around, and the first person is going to shake the milk until they feel it's ready, right, until they feel it's done, and they're going to pass it to the next person. And the first kid got the milk, and he was going like this, and they're consulting with each other. Do you think it's ready? I don't know. Let's move it. Let's move it along. Let's try you. Let's see how you shake the milk. And while they did this, I was able to crack the eggs and measure out the muffin mix and pour it into the bowl. And we all helped stir, which really didn't help, of course. That just made a giant mess. But what I loved about that experience and what it showed me was that there's something incredible we can learn from the immediacy of a child. They understand that we're here together to do something. They don't want to be off on their own. They don't want to be isolated. They don't want to be disconnected from what's happening right now. They demand entry into each other's worlds. They demand that we let them into our world. And what a gift it is to be pulled into that kind of a connection with another person, even when we might feel tired or unworthy or unprepared. They wake us up. Every Sunday here at Wellsprings, our worship leader begins our time of meditation with this phrase, there's nowhere else to go and there's nowhere else to be. That portion of our service feels like such a load off for me every week, such a place where I can just relax. That's right. There's nowhere else to go and there's nowhere else to be. We're here. And that next phrase That next phrase, there's nowhere else to go, there's nowhere else to be. So let's be here together now. When Frank said that word this morning, together, whenever I hear that word together, it switches my perspective. 
nowhere else to go and nowhere else to be. I can kind of be in my own little happy soul place, right? Ah, I'm here. There's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to be. But when we say together, suddenly I'm aware of the person next to me. Aware of the person on my right, the person on my left, the breathing of the person behind me, the wiggling in the chair of the child three rows up. There's a different energy in the room when we recognize that this is not our own little private happy place. This is a place where for some reason, every Sunday morning, we get up and we decide, I'm going to try this week. I'm going to try to reach out and to show up and to be myself in faith that all of these people who are here with me will receive me that way. It's a courageous thing we do. It takes us back to that nature, what we were like when we were children. Showing up unafraid. Demanding in some ways. Calling out to others to be seen. Togetherness is a word that gets used in a lot of different ways. Togetherness is a word that has a really wide definition, and sometimes we think of it as kind of this sappy thing, right? Like it's something on a Hallmark greeting card. The rabbi and social theorist Edwin Friedman talks about how togetherness as this gloopy, sappy, sentimental kind of thing can actually really damage us. Togetherness can become glommy, he says. We have this temptation to just seek out other people as supports. Not as mutual supports, but as you know, distractions from our lives. Turning people into objects in a way. Turning people into things and activities and whole other worlds that we can just subsume and absorb ourselves within so that we don't have to face the anxieties, the fears, the joys or the desires that we carry around. It takes a lot more courage to show up as our unique selves with that spark that each of us carries and to show it to each other that glommy togetherness that just seeks to be hiding, seeks to be anonymous, seeks to be within. It's a kind of death. Because we lose ourselves and what makes us unique. When we do that, it hurts the whole group. Because we lose our ability to wake each other up. It's each of those unique things that we bring, imperfect as they are, falling apart sometimes in a meeting, right, like Frank talked about, as they are, vulnerable as they are, those are the things that can be a gift to someone else and can wake them up and leave them unable to fall asleep at night in a good way. Togetherness doesn't have to mean gloopy and glommy together. Like I said before, this word covers such a huge range of definitions. We can actually think about it, I would say, on uh, on the terms of a continuum. From over here on the left, there's that song, that children's song, The More We Get Together, right? The more we get together, together, together. All right. (laughs) We'll sing the whole thing after the service. We'll get together. 
and sing it. That kind of a song is just about, you know, being in the same place, right? What we do every Sunday morning, gathering. Togetherness can mean just proximity. It can mean having people together in the same physical location. Or it can mean all the way over to the other side of the continuum, right? Al Green togetherness. A very different kind of togetherness. A very heavily laden and emotional kind of togetherness. Al Green, let's stay together. I'm not going to sing that one. (laughs) Togetherness covers our proximity. It covers the idea of touching. Right? We say things like she held her hands together as if in prayer. Contact. Togetherness covers this idea that we can commingle that we can intermix somehow. We talk about ingredients for guacamole, right? Taken together, they produce a delicious topping for nachos. They become something more than the sum of their parts when they're combined. There's all these physical ways we talk about togetherness, and then there's also these ephemeral, emotional ways we talk about being together. They've been together for 30 years. That means a lot more than they just were in proximity to each other, right? It's a lot more story there. The experience of this hardship brought us closer together. What does that mean? There's so much packed into that word. It means simultaneous union. Not just space, but time. The audience gasped as the choir raised their voices together in song. This is the transcendent togetherness. I think this is the hope that pulls us out of bed sometimes on Sunday mornings and throughout the rest of our lives. The hope that we will be able to experience that kind of togetherness that brings us to a different understanding of who we are in this world. Our craving for togetherness is so natural and instinctual. I have a million stories of how I've seen it show up for little kids. I'll tell you one. A friend of mine who's an Episcopal priest, actually, she's also the mom to an eight-month-old baby. And she posted a picture of her daughter, Ruby, on Facebook earlier this week with a caption. This is the picture of Ruby. <laughs> She's an expressive baby. She's, she's the toddler sitting in the lap of her daycare provider. And the caption on this photo said, As of Monday, Ruby is no longer the youngest baby in her daycare class. <laughs> ah, yes. She saw that the new baby was getting a bottle, and so she crawled over and sat herself up grumpily in her teacher's lap, perhaps trying to send her teacher a message. <laughs> She is struggling with this reality a little bit. I think sometimes we all feel a little bit like Ruby. There are days when we long for, when we crawl towards connection. When we feel that the the current connections in our lives are threatened. When we remember a connection that is lost, we want to recapture it. Roshi Pat Ankyo O'Hara, who's a Zen priest in New York City, she writes about this craving. 
this natural, innate craving that we have in a book called Most Intimate. Intimacy is another laden word. If you're like me, maybe your primary association with intimacy is that it was one of those words your parents used as an embarrassing euphemism when they didn't want to talk about sex in front of you. <laughs> Mom, stop talking about intimacy. Ooh. But intimacy is just this. It's the realization that we are in relationship always with everything that is. And everything that is is in relationship with us. We are in relationship with everything that is. And everything that is is in relationship with us. We are all in relationship with this room. We are all in relationship with the wood beams that are holding up the ceiling. We are all in relationship with the light coming from the lamps illuminating our skin. We are all in relationship with the electrons in the air around us. We are all in relationship with whatever smells are wafting in front of you right now. If you were holding a cup of coffee this morning and smelling that roasted bean, do you know how sense of smell actually works? Molecules from the thing that you're smelling are floating through the air, and they're actually entering your nasal passages at a level that we can't see. It's kind of gross when you think about some of the things you smell, right? <laughs> but it's very intimate. We are always in that kind of relationship with the world around us. Whether we're aware of it or not, it's always here. Roshi O'Hara talks about the tradition in her Zen community of awarding new priests a patchwork robe. It's a beautiful idea, right? A robe that's sewn together from pieces of cloth from all of the other members of the community, from all of the people who are important to you in your life, sewn together with you know, beautiful fabrics from wedding dresses and blouses and suits and rags and baby bibs and all kinds of different fabric, each of which represents a person in your life, that you get to wear and carry around with you in your service as a priest. She said, this robe that I wear calls to mind all the people that I see every day. It also calls to mind all the people who are very far away and who I miss very deeply. And it calls to mind all of the people whose relationships with me have changed over time. And it calls to mind all of the people I have loved who have died. Whether I wear this memory robe or not, it reminds me that this is actually the way I live all the time. In relationship with all of these people. All of the people who have shaped me. We carry with us all the memories of lost intimacies and failed intimacies carry with us the connections that bring us joy in the present moment 
We carry with us the excitement of the potential for all the new connections that we'll make. They're all here. No amount of hermit-style living, no amount of isolation can actually keep us from carrying all of those people with us. We wear those relationships on our bodies like a robe every day. That is a huge part of what makes life so complicated, right? So deeply heartbreaking and painfully exciting at the same time. Our relationships are the filter of meaning through which everything passes. Our relationships are the filter of meaning through which everything passes. I'll give you an example. I heard a story recently from another parent, a dad. He was talking about uh, this study that came out that showed that there are similar parts of our brain that light up when we have a violent impulse and when we see something really cute. Anybody read this study? So think about it, right? When you see like a new baby kitten or a bunny rabbit with a vest on or like a hedgehog in pants and slippers or something, like one of those memes, right? It's really, really adorable. And you say something like, oh, I just want to eat your little face. That's messed up, right? (laughs) Oh, I just want to bite your nose off. We say things like that. We say things like that to babies, to human babies. You know you've done it. Some people want to eat feet off babies. I've heard it all, people. So he was talking about this study that showed that, you know, there's actually something in our brain chemistry. Nobody quite knows what it is, but it's showing up there that's similar. Um, And he says, you know, I could relate to this because my wife and I, when our daughter was born, Amelie, we did this all the time. But it also showed up for us in the words, the terms of endearment that we used for her. For some reason, he said, my wife and I, from the moment she was born, we were talking about how cute she was. We would say to her, oh, you're so cute, you little butthead, you're so cute. You little butthead. (laughs) And it was done in the spirit of nothing but love and joy and laughter. But it continued on until she was about five. And she was playing with a group of other kids. I think they were her cousins. And one of the kids said to the other kid, oh, you know, something, you butthead. And the parents that were there had to, you know, step in and say, we don't say that word. You know, we don't talk to each other that way. That's not a nice word. And they kind of explained a little bit about why. And he said, all the kids were quiet for about 30 seconds. And then suddenly they heard, hey, my parents call me a butthead. (laughs) They couldn't call her a butthead after that. Not the same way. You know, it's the perfect story to illustrate the fact that the meaning that we give to everything comes from the relationships, comes from the connections that we have. The word butthead, for some reason, for five years of this little girl's life, meant nothing but that she was beloved and precious and adorable and the center of her mom and dad's heart. This dumb word that meant to the rest of the world something, you know, kind of rude and immature. What gives any material in our lives meaning? 
is relationship. Whatever material it is that we're working with, the dumb and immature and mundane and stupid, the painful, the beautiful and awesome and ecstatic, what gives it all meaning is relationship. I love that story because it shows that even the dumbest little stupid thing can be used for love. I think that Martin Luther King Jr., whose birthday that we're celebrating tomorrow here at Wellsprings with a day of service, which almost 50 of you have signed up to participate in. Thank you. This is the kind of love that he talked about. He didn't talk about sappy, sentimental, glommy, togetherness, hallmark kind of love. When you listen to Martin Luther King Jr. talk about love and its power, you are not hearing something sweet. You're hearing something deeply subversive. He said, hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. We have a hard time believing that. Because when we only think of love as that sappy, sweet, glommy togetherness kind of love, we don't see how powerful and revolutionary and subversive and undermining of evil and violence and damage that it can be. But he could see that. He could see the kind of love that sneaks in and infiltrates the little butthead spaces in our world, the spaces where people hurt each other in small ways, the spaces where all of that small hurt comes together and creates a larger world of big hurt. He saw that it was those tiny, subversive acts of love Not some big grand plan, but daily choices that we all can make that could undermine and change the whole thing. I want to teach you, as we close today, a little prayer that I used to do with the toddlers in my religious education class, if you'll humor me. I'm going to teach it to you the way I taught it to them first. So repeat after me, everyone. You ready? We are blessed. We are blessed by being. We are blessed by being here. And we are blessed by being here together. And then you all take hands. Go. That is about how long a prayer can be and still hold the attention of a toddler, right? <laughs> so we're going to try it one more time. How many of us have ever done a loving kindness meditation? So you know that in a loving kindness meditation, we hold space in between each of these steps. We connect with ourselves, we connect with the world around us, and each time we take a pause and we just see what arises for us, what's here. So we're going to take some time as we do our prayer one last time. With each of our hands together, touching in contact with ourselves, repeat after me. We are blessed. Notice what comes up for you. We are blessed by being. Do you notice? Can you feel your heartbeat? 
We are blessed by being here. What do you notice about this place? We are blessed by being here together. These hands in ours, these paws in ours, they are what matters right here where we are together. Grateful for all of it. All of these people are people who have the power to connect and to love. No one of us is immune. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Great, holy connector, God of all things, presence who lives in the spaces between us, help us to remember that we carry with us so many hearts, so many lives in our own, the lives of all who have taught us and come before, the lives of all who are with us right now. Help us to remember that we need not be scared of showing who we really are to anyone. Because each of us is so much more than the sum of our parts. Each of us has a unique, irreplaceable way of being a gift to someone else, of waking them up from whatever they might be living through right now. Help us to know that that is enough. That we don't need to work at or try or self-improve to be here right now but that our simple presence is what matters. For these prayers and for the prayers that each of these people carries silently on their hearts this morning, we say amen.